would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 124. Psalm 124. Before reading the word of the Lord, let's go to him in prayer. Our great God, we acknowledge that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, disturbing the thoughts, actions, and motives of our hearts. In whatever state we might come to you this day, out of discouragement or sorrow, out of fears or worries of what might lie ahead, may our attention be this day upon the hope that is ours in the risen Christ, the joy of being called out of darkness into the wonderful light of your truth. And grow us in grace, we pray, O Lord. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. A song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The word of our God, you may be seated. As we continue our progress through this collection of 15 psalms from 120 to 134, which all bear the same title, we could think of these psalms as traveling songs. Psalms that were used by the ancient Israelite who would travel at least once per year to the city of Jerusalem to give his sacrifices and to worship the Lord. And these psalms share many attributes. They're relatively short. They would have been put to song and easily memorized, full of rich instruction. And they are psalms that are really ideal for this particular setting. And most of you probably have your favorite vacation destination. Maybe there's a location that you like to go to with your family at least once a year. Living in central Florida, it's probably either the beach or the mountains of North Carolina. And while it may be a refreshing time, it could be that the familiarity of going to the same location year after year might sort of lend itself to taking that time for granted. The familiarity could lend itself to apathy. Similarly, the family in ancient Israel taking this annual journey to the city of David might begin to slip into the routine of merely going through the motions. And so these psalms collectively would help them to remember and not take for granted the wondrous relationship that they share with the living covenant God. And this psalm in particular, Psalm 124, would serve this purpose as a psalm of remembrance or a psalm of thanksgiving. Now, in your own reading of the Psalms, you've probably noticed that the Psalms cover the whole spectrum of human emotion, from the great joys and blessings that we experience in this earthly life 
to the hardships, struggles, and sorrows that we may experience. And they can be categorized into different classifications. There are psalms of praise, psalms of lament, psalms which we could refer to as wisdom psalms, and of course, psalms of thanksgiving. And I think what characterizes a psalm of thanksgiving is very simply a look back, a look back to the past and giving God thanks for what He has done. By reflecting on God's goodness, by looking back and seeing what He has done in His providence and in His work of redemption in our lives, we feed and we nourish our souls as we seek to live for our great King. And what I hope that we'll see this morning is that remembering in your own life what the triune God has done to deliver you ought also to lead to this response of praise, of thanksgiving, of wonder that you belong to the living God, that the one who is the creator of all would be so merciful to you. And so first this morning, David, who is the divinely inspired author of this particular psalm, spends the first five verses reflecting upon the Lord's faithfulness to His people. And it's a faithfulness that is evident because of the presence of God with them. So that's our first point this morning. The Lord is faithful because He is on your side. The Lord is faithful because He is with you. When I was in college, my friend Doug and I spent one summer helping out with our church's youth group. And among other things, we coached our high school softball team in the church softball league throughout the city. And there was this one kid who would always come out and play with us, Darius, who was probably the most athletic kid that I'd ever seen. He played football, basketball, baseball, ran track, and excelled at everything. It wasn't a surprise when he got a football scholarship to play in college and even went on to play in the NFL for a few years. And when Darius showed up, we were all excited because we knew that it was a guaranteed victory. Every time that he came to bat, it was a home run. Nobody wanted to even get in front of the ball to try to stop it. And on defense, it seemed as though he was all over the field on every play. You definitely wanted him on your side. In this psalm, David speaks of the certainty of victory because the Lord is on our side. And notice the repetition of this phrase in verses 1 and 2, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. And as this statement is reiterated, it helps us to see how critical it is that we keep this truth central, that there is no salvation, there is no help, there is no hope in this life or in the next if the Lord is not with you, if the Lord is not on your side. We all remember those if-then formulas from our math or logic classes, that if this particular premise is true, then here is the logical conclusion, the necessary implication. And here David is challenging you to reflect upon the past, to think back to the past and the way in which you have seen the Lord's providence in your own life. Think back to where you have seen His salvation intrude into your life and consider if he had not been with me in the midst of that, then where would I be? Now, we don't have the precise historical setting of when this psalm was written. David is not writing this psalm out of one singular struggle. He's not writing out of one particular memory. 
but he's reflecting upon all of the ways in which he has seen the Lord been gracious to him and to the life of the children of Israel. You can think of the way in which the Lord triumphed over the Philistines when David was younger and victorious in that showdown with Goliath, the mighty warrior whom David faced with merely a slingshot and the infinite God on his side. He might have in mind the jealous rage of King Saul, that even though David was anointed to be the king, David was, or Saul rather, was filled with hatred toward David, gave him these seemingly impossible tasks to perform, hoping that he would die, becoming so filled with rage that he hurled spears at him in that inner kingly chamber, and even got together an entire army to hunt him down in an attempt to take his life. But the Lord was on his side. David might also be reflecting upon the numerous battles that he endured against his enemies, most formidable of the Philistines, those who at times would outnumber and outmaneuver them, and yet the Lord gave victory over a more powerful opponent because the Lord was on his side. He might even have in mind the political struggles that he endured throughout his kingly reign, the family divisions in which there was conspiracy to take the throne from him, rape and murder among his own offspring. He might even have in mind the moral failures in his own life in which he used his position as king to commit adultery and then murder. As David remembers such things from his life, he sees so clearly that the Lord was on his side. He sees the Lord's patience. He sees the Lord's mercy. He sees the Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's providence working very intimately in his life. But the instruction for Israel here is to consider her own history. They too ought to reflect upon the ways in which they have seen the Lord's faithfulness and protection and provision for them. The patriarch Jacob, whose name became Israel, fought with God, not just on those desert plains when he literally wrestled with God, but he fought with God and wrestled with Him prior to that his entire life. But even after coming to know God, when the Lord prevailed over his hard heart, things seemed to get worse in Jacob's life. There was the sorrow of losing his wife. There was the presumption that his beloved son Joseph was killed. When the famine came and his sons went to Egypt to get food, his son Simeon was imprisoned. And if they needed more food, they had to take Benjamin back with them, and there was the fear that he might lose that son as well. And yet toward the end of Jacob's life, he reflects upon the depths of struggle and then to the wondrous heights of restoration as he confesses at the end of Genesis that what others meant for evil, God meant for good. The living God was on his side. And from there, Israel experiences the captivity of the Egyptians, the oppression and abuse and death of many of them at the hands of the Egyptians, but it is the Lord who is on the side of His people, who fights for them, who delivers, who establishes them as a nation, favored because of their covenant relationship with Him. And although the Egyptian army was destroyed in the floodwaters, they then faced those troublesome years of being in the wilderness. There was that incident from Numbers chapter 16 in which there's this act of rebellion from a man named Korah and his followers who questioned the Lord's guidance 
and he questioned Moses as the appointed leader of the people. The earth opened up and swallowed Korah and his followers alive. And so it's not only the enemies that they might face in the world out there, but those who might rise up amongst them, stirring hatred and division. And yet God was faithful. The Lord is on their side in His patience, in His love, and in His redemption. And the metaphors in these first five verses are vivid and filled with this destructive imagery. The enemies of the people of God want to rise up against them, swallow them alive in their anger, sweep them away like a torrential flood. And such images convey hatred and utter disdain for the people of God. We've seen this theme already in these Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 120 and 123. And the question, I think, might always arise in our minds, why? Why such hatred toward those who are the people of God? Well, St. Augustine in his book, The City of God, makes the case that since the fall of man, mankind has been divided into two ultimate allegiances, and whichever one man serves indicates his citizenship. Those who were redeemed in Christ Jesus, who belong to the living God, are citizens of this heavenly city, the city of God, whose builder and maker is the triune God Himself. But those who remain hardened against God belong to this earthly city, which is dominated by its lust and passions for dominion, and ultimately their allegiance is to the evil one. But they are not satisfied in merely being opposed to God. They're not satisfied with some naive notion of peaceful coexistence. But what they really want is to overthrow God and to destroy His people, to overwhelm them and to swallow them up in hatred. Now, this destructive language that we see in these first five verses, these are all ways in which Satan himself, the evil one, is depicted in the New Testament. He seeks to destroy the people of God. He wants to swallow them up in his unrelenting rage and hatred. He desires to overwhelm, to drag away, to deceive, to entice, to seek, to devastate those who belong to God. Now turn with me, if you will, to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, as I read these few verses, pay attention here to a couple of things. Notice how, first of all, this is a summary of the entirety of world history in these few verses. And at the same time, notice some of the same imagery in Revelation 12 that we see in Psalm 124, beginning in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, 
and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And in this text we see here the grand story of redemption, don't we? That the church of our Savior will never perish. That even if we lose all in this life, whatever the cost might be, we will never lose our precious Savior. Jesus says in John 10, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. My Father who is greater than all has given them to me. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We read in Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers and they will not overwhelm you. And so while we may not contend with flesh and blood, we do wrestle with a very real enemy who directs his murderous rage toward the people of God. In a sermon I heard a number of years ago by Sinclair Ferguson on Ephesians chapter 6, you recall that passage in which he talks about the spiritual battle that is, in, that is engaged all around us and the full armor of God that God's people are called to put on. And Ferguson commented that the devil knows he cannot change the status of God's children. He knows enough about the Word of God to know that those who belong to Christ are no longer his and he cannot have them. But he will do all that he can to make the believer in Christ ineffective and unproductive. He will do all that he can to make you believe that you are simply a hypocrite and have wasted your witness among this fallen world. He will do all that he can to undermine and deceive you and rob you of your joy. So we may not fight with a pagan army who wants to destroy us, but it is important for us to be mindful of the spiritual realities that there is a very real evil one who wants to do us harm. But the hope is that God is on our side. And second this morning, back to Psalm 124, still in the first five verses, take time to remember His deliverance. Take time to reflect upon the way in which God has delivered you. And we live in an age which really doesn't care much for history. We live in the moment. We only seem to care about ourselves, our immediate gratification, and that which is right in front of us. But as God's people, we don't want to fall into that disinterest or disdain toward our past. And just as David instructs the children of Israel to reflect upon God's deliverance. I think there's great pastoral guidance for us here to consider where you would have been were it not for God's mercy and kindness to you. 
Where would you have been had, it, had you not been a recipient of His grace? Where would you have been were it not for His divine, sovereign election? Where would you have been had the Lord not protected and preserved you and guided your steps? As a pastor, I've had the privilege of talking with many of you over the years in hearing about how the Lord has worked in your life, either to draw you to Himself or continue to work His faithful providence in you, directing your path and bringing you to Himself. Some of you come from families in which you're the only one who professes faith in Christ Jesus, and you marvel and you wonder at God's grace. Why me? Remember those wondrous words from the hymn by Isaac Watts, how sweet and awful that is full of awe is the place. And Watts writes, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? It ought to be humbling for us to give thanks to God because we know that we are not smarter than anyone else. It's not as though we have more insight or wisdom than another. Were it not for God's grace intruding into my life and removing that heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, I would be lost. Jeremiah says in chapter 9, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Or think of our New Testament Scripture reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, that in the middle of Paul marveling at the wonder of God's grace to save lost sinners in the midst of exalting God because of His mercy shown to us, there is one simple command, only one command in the first three chapters of that book of Ephesians. Remember. Remember who you once were separated from Christ, hostile to God, with no interest in Him, no care for His covenant of grace, no hope for you are without God, but now in Christ you have been brought near and reconciled because of the shed blood of Christ upon the cross. Never tire of telling of God's wonderful work in your life. Don't forget, don't become complacent in this area, but spend time in your life regularly reflecting upon God's goodness to you and giving Him thanks. Where would you be without God's grace? And thirdly, verses 6 and 7, we see there thanksgiving to the Lord for His deliverance. Thanksgiving to God because He is on our side and has delivered us. As David reflects upon God's faithfulness to himself and to his fellow Israelites, his response in verse 6 is to bless the Lord. What does it mean to bless the Lord? We know that when the Lord blesses us, He gives to us things that are unmerited and undeserving. But when we bless Him, we are not adding anything, of course, to His nature. 
He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. There's nothing that you can add to that which is already infinite and eternal. But rather to bless Him is to ascribe worth to Him, to acknowledge that which is infinitely true of His character. We ascribe praise to His name, for He is the only source of deliverance. He blesses us through the gift of salvation and the provision of our deepest need, and so our response is simply to exalt His name in worship. And notice that there is further imagery in verses five, or 6 and 7 of God's deliverance, reasons why we bless His name. We are not prey to their teeth, but we have escaped like a bird from the snare, as David puts it. We were held captive, you see, in sin and in darkness. We were helpless to release ourselves. We were about to be destroyed, but He has delivered. It's a wonderful imagery of our helplessness and the power of our God to break that trap and set us free. As Jesus says in John 8, the Son has set you free. And if He has set you free, you will be free indeed. In Romans chapter 6, Paul's make, Paul makes the argument there that we are free from captivity in sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are freed and now made bondservants to the risen Christ Jesus. So how are we made free? How are we made free from that snare of death and darkness and captivity? 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The eternal Son of God took flesh upon Himself. And among other things, the reason why He came was to destroy that snare that we might be free. And John Calvin is speaking of the work of Christ as victor, as the triumphant soldier who goes out to meet the evil one, says that He advances of His own accord. He advances willingly to meet death. Jesus, as we talked about from Psalm 123 last week, is the propitiatory sacrifice. He is the sinless one who laid down His life, who bore the wrath of God in our place. And at the same time, He gains victory over the evil one, disarming the powers of darkness. Listen to what we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He Himself partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so as we thank our great God, as we remember His works of providence in our lives, we remember most of all His wonderful work of redemption, that He has set us free from captivity and from condemnation. And finally, this morning, the psalm concludes in verse 8 as he proclaims the Lord's deliverance. And that's our fourth point this morning, remember the Creator. Verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this verse could really serve almost as a standalone verse. It's like a confessional statement. It could be used as a call to worship it could serve really as a summary of our hope in the living God. And so as we reflect upon God's kindness and goodness to redeem us, 
as we reflect upon his wonderful providence and the way in which he has cared for us, the confession here is that our help comes in the name of the covenant God, the name of our Lord, the creator of all. Whatever trial we might be called to endure, whatever sorrow we might experience in this life, no matter how great the discouragement, our hope is that we belong to this one, this great God who is the creator and sustainer of all. The great one who is on our side is the same one who is the source of all power. He is the one who has created all by the power of his spoken word. He has brought all that is out of nothing, and he continues to hold the created order in the palm of his hand, governing, directing, and preserving. This same God is our helper to the very end. Earlier this this summer, when our oldest son turned 21, he wanted to celebrate his birthday by going skydiving in one of those tandem skydiving things. I immediately thought, there are a hundred things that I would rather do than that. (laughs) And later on in the day, as we were talking, I asked him, what were you thinking? Not so much, what were you thinking? That was beforehand. (laughs) But what was going through your mind? What, What sort of experience was that like? And as he talked about the obvious thrill of the descent, he spoke very quickly about looking at the amazement of God's creation, the wonder of being able to see so far in the expanse, even in this small little peninsula of Florida, and to look up and marvel at the beauty of God's creation, and to spend a brief moment thanking God for what He has done. How important for us regularly to marvel at God's creation, to look to the heavens above and give thanks to our God, to consider the vast expanse of creation and to fill our minds and hearts and our souls with awe that our God has made everything and He has remembered me. Nothing is impossible for this one who has infinite power and infinite wisdom at His disposal. Where would I be if God were not on my side? Where would I be if the Lord Jesus had not redeemed me from the darkness of my own heart? I know where I would be. I would be lost. I would be undone. I would be still under the wrath of God. One commentary that I read this past week says that from whatever source a danger arises and with whatever certainty it exists, whether occasional or permanent, the Lord is sufficient. If you profess faith in Christ Jesus, God is on your side. Your help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Robert Godfrey remarks that the God who is committed to helping us is the God who created everything. He who created is more than able to help. So what are some applications that we can draw from this psalm this morning? Well, here are at least a few. First, do what this psalm advocates. Take time, even this afternoon as you're sharing a meal with your family, 
take time to reflect upon the way in which the Lord has been good and gracious to you. Take time to speak with your children, with your grandchildren, with your roommates about all the ways in which you have seen God's providence and faithfulness to redeem you. And even if you're in the midst of trials, there is joy in the hope of the gospel, joy in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus who has delivered us from the greatest enemy of all. And second, delight in God's providence. You see, if everything in life falls under the providence of God, then I must be willing to submit to Him in all things, to trust that He knows what He is doing, to believe that He is working in all circumstances to make me more and more into the image of His dear Son. There are no accidents to His providence. His providence is always good and purposeful. It doesn't mean that we must assent to its goodness. It is always good, and we can always trust and always thank Him. Even when He brings us through hardship, He is working His refining grace in our lives, strengthening our faith, and bringing good even out of evil. And third, consider what it is you are thanking God for. You see, you might look back over your life and you might say to yourself, yeah, God has been good to me. I have a good education. I have a good-paying job. I have a wife and kids that like me at least most of the time. I have good friends and a relatively comfortable life, and certainly we ought to thank God for such things. But what if that is all you see? What if all you see are the treasures of this world and the comforts of this life alone? What if your life is good, but you don't really know the peace of God that this psalm speaks to? What if you don't truly know if God is on your side? Well, even if you were to gain the whole world, what would it matter if you forfeit your soul? And the call is for you to put your faith in Christ Jesus, the one who took the evil of the world upon himself, the one who bore that wrath of God that you deserved the one who burst the chains of hell to set you free from darkness and captivity. This is the one you can know. And this is the one that you can have the assurance of that John chapter 6 speaks of, that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This comfort can be yours. Come to Christ. With Him on your side, there is hope and help. And finally this morning, bless His name. Proclaim His name. Paul in Romans chapter 8 uses the same line of reasoning that we find here in this psalm. If God is for us, who could be against us? If God is on our side, who could possibly stand against the people of God? And how do we know that we belong to Him? How do we know that He is on our side? Paul goes on, verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? If the eternal Son of God came to release you from captivity, to snatch you from the teeth of the wicked one, to free you from that snare, if He went to the cross and shed His own blood, and took the sin of the world upon Himself, then why would He stop now holding you in His nail-scarred hands to the very end? 
In closing, listen to Richard Sibbs, a Puritan pastor, who in a sermon said this, Our comfort is altogether in the Lord. In darkness, He is our light. In danger, He is our salvation. In weakness, He is our strength. And in all our afflictions and difficulties, He is the strength of our life. In the greatest danger that can be, my heart shall not fear, for the Lord is on my side. Remember, people of God, the Lord's deliverance. Remember this one who has been so merciful and kind to you. And may this great God be pleased to take the eternal truth of His Word and to write it on the hearts of His people. Amen.